on staff. Wow, great. Well, thanks. Um, thanks for inviting me to speak today. It's great to be here. Uh, and glad that at least some people have come today. I feel there are a lot of guidelines out there. Uh, you can go to Aspen uh, website and Aspen and SCCM have worked together on guidelines, and there's a new version, I think, that's somewhere in the uh, process of getting done. Uh, ESPN, the European Society Chess, Critical Care and Nutrition, the Canadian guidelines. I don't know if nutrition is any different for Canadians than for Americans. I don't know, probably more, more <laughs> mindful maple syrup. Is that part of the diet? Here, it's more French fries and, and McDonald's, I guess. More obesity. Anyway, lots of things out there. But, you know, it kind of, there's not, there's not a lot of rocket science to it. People are trying to put some rocket science to it. Um, but there's really not that much yet to really hang our hats on. Um, in fact, if you want to go to lunch, the main message I'm going to end up with here is going to be feed people, feed them early, use the gut, and that's the main message. So if you fall asleep, you already got the main message of this talk. Because <clears throat> there's not, I mean, there is data out there. There's, there's a, a lot of data, but you got to be careful about comparative groups. Obviously, we always talk about blinded studies, but it's important that if you're looking at some additive and nutritional formula that the comparator gets the same amount of protein and calories and all that kind of stuff. So it's important to look at those details of the studies. Uh, and it's always been kind of weird to me, too, when, when people are studying the effects of something uh, that they add, like a trace element or something like that, that they could give separately to the nutrition the, the, you know, the bag of nutrition that you hang at the bedside, why they don't just study it that way. So there's a lot of weirdness in the data. Uh, so I'm going to show some studies, but in the end, it's kind of hard to really take away from that things we should do differently at the bedside. What, so what are the goals of nutritional support? Uh, in, for the most part, and it really kind of comes down to this, is prevent badness. We want to support patients to help them recover. We want to preserve lean body mass, maintain immune function avert some metabolic complications of starvation. In theory, we'd like to add some goodness, and that's where there's been some more studies, but it's hard to say that any of that's really panned out. So we can maybe attenuate the response to injury, oxidative stress, uh, maybe impact the immune system. Those are some of the ideas that have been out there, but you know, we don't have the meat yet to say, so to speak, that uh, we can do that. So one thing that is pretty clear is starvation is bad, particularly if you're sick. And this is, a, I love this little classic drawing of what happens if you're a normal person and you starve. So where do you get energy when you're starving? Well, the first thing you do, and this we all do at night, is we use up glycogen that's in the liver. That doesn't last too long. So then we need to get energy. And the energy that we need it mostly for is the brain, right? That's consuming a lot of the energy, so the brain needs the glucose. So if you don't have much more glycogen, then the liver has to make glucose, and you get that from breaking down protein, mostly from amino acids, and a little bit from glycerol. But early on, so the big problem is that in order to get the glucose your brain needs, as well as the formed elements of blood, like red cells and white cells, you got to break down protein. So our patients, by definition, always catabolic, and that's the problem, and that's what we need to try to, to keep up with and fix. If you are not a critically ill patient, you can adapt to this. I mean, if you were on a hunger strike to protest whatever, 
over time, one thing is your basal energy requirements go down because you're not out trying to run a marathon. You're just hanging out on your couch or your jail cell or wherever. Uh, but the other thing that happens physiologically is that your brain starts being able to use uh, ketones, which that allows you then to use your fat stores. And, and certainly if we're talking about Americans, we've got plenty of extra fat stores. So we can break down our fat and keep our brain happy and utilize less of our uh, muscle breakdown. And it's important from an ICU perspective to think about the fact that when we talk about muscle breakdown, it's not like losing some, some uh, strength in your legs. I mean, you do that too, but it's like diaphragm and myocytes. And so it's important muscles to keep alive and get people off ventilators. So it plays into the whole issue of getting people out of the ICU. Now, some of the catabolism you can decrease just by giving people a little bit of glucose, which is part of the reason that there's you know, D5, whatever kind of crystal you like, uh, is around. And that has a little bit of impact on catabolism, but not huge. So that's an important background, because our patients, by definition, if we don't feed them, they're starving, and they're catabolic, and that's what we need to try to prevent. So what I'm going to do is talk through some of these various aspects of nutritional support. So assessment of the patient, timing, uh, requirements for protein, requirements for calories, routes of administration, and then special stuff. So patient assessment. And this is what our nutritionists are great at doing for us to help us out. You look at things like weight loss, how much nutrition they've had. Disease severity is a really important part of this which plays into also comorbid conditions as well as obviously uh, GI function. It's important if we're talking about how to feed them. Um, you know, we've traditionally looked at some traditional values like albumin, pre-albumin. Uh, keeping in mind, albumin's half-life is around three weeks. Pre-albumin is more like a few days. So if somebody is uh, low in the protein stores over a long period, albumin is helpful. So it's kind of helpful for stratifying patients' risk preoperatively or pre-injury or pre-whatever, not necessarily for us in the ICU because uh, you know, it's not going to change much over weeks. Now, one of the other issues with looking at any of these parameters and the reason they don't necessarily pan out very well uh, is that some of them, they're acute phase reactants. So they're going to go up for that reason. And then they're also going to go down so we dilute them with all the fluids we give them. So who knows what the values really mean. So it's kind of hard to utilize things. I mean, there has been sort of a tradition of like every Monday you get a pre-albumin level on people. I, and I think people are questioning more and more, what do we do with that? I mean, yeah, okay, it's bad. Let's keep giving them more nutrition. So it's hard to know what to do with that stuff. There are some scoring systems around. This is uh, Darren Halen's uh, uh, Nutric score, which, as you can see, doesn't really take much into account things like weight loss, nutritional status. They look, it's just mainly age. In, uh, you know, patchy is a way of scoring the severity of illness and SOFA scores, comorbidities, uh, interleukin-6. I mean, how, when was the last time we got an IL-6 level on somebody in the hospital? <laughs> but in theory, you know, it kind of tells you something, I guess, about inflammatory response. But you can get a score that could be useful to stratifying these patients. This patient's really high risk, but this patient's not. Another one that's been around longer, that's, that's, that's more simple in a way, <clears throat> is this nutritional risk screening, or NRS 2002 score. Basically, uh, one to three based on how much weight loss the patient has had or how low the BMI is, uh, or 
LN looking at the severity of disease based on mild things like just having a hip fracture or very severe risk like bone marrow transplantation or a TBI. Uh, and then you add a uh, uh, age factor. It was great this morning. Um, Dave Gens was giving surgery grant rounds and, and talking about nutrition for people undergoing repair of big abdominal hernias. He commented on the albumin use, which is useful there because it's an elective procedure. You can check it in the office, and if it's low, you know the guy's got chronic malnutrition. He also commented on this score <laughs> with the caveat that he didn't like the fact that now he gets a point for his age. Um, but it is a kind of a useful way to look at this, and if you get a couple points here, your patient's at significant risk of nutritional problems. Now, getting into timing of feeding, certainly it's pretty clear, as clear as much of anything is in nutritional data, that early is good. Um, within 24 to 48 hours, it does seem to decrease infection, decrease length of stay, maybe more mortality. So there's a window of opportunity there. Um, as we'll get to, if you wait, it then becomes more difficult to do things like feed the gut. The gut's happy if you feed it early. But there is too early. So it's probably not good to feed people when they're hypotensive, while you're still in the middle of volume resuscitating them. Uh, if they're on pressors, now that becomes a little relative. And this, kind of, this question kind of comes up. Okay, the guy's in septic shock, and you got him on you know, some kind of dose of norepinephrine and maybe vasopressin, but now it's like three days later, and it still requires a little bit. It's pretty decent data that you could start some feeds. You, like anybody else, you've got to be careful with it. But it's not like an absolute of if you've got any vasopressor going, you don't want to feed them. you just got to be a little more careful. And with any of these patients, you want to watch for poor uh, tube feeding uh, tolerance. If you do feed too early, that's what happens. That's some bowel filled up with two feeds in this patient that was not fully resuscitated before he got his two feet started. So there is something that is too early, but you don't wait too long. So you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, you just might find what you need. You get what you need, according to the great philosopher, uh, Mr. Jagger. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's hard to know exactly what people need, but how do we figure out what our patients in the ICU need? So what about protein needs? Well, we can look at nitrogen balance. So you guys are awake. What's, what's the nitrogen balance? Anybody? No, nobody ever does it anymore. No, is that why you don't? Okay. Um, so you look at the amount of nitrogen going in, which is your tube feeds you're giving the patient, and you look at what's coming out. Recognizing this is the relationship between nitrogen and protein, nitrogen intake, you, you know, typically you're doing this somewhere, you're controlling it, so you know what the intake is, but the output, you look at 24-hour urine, urine, nitrogen, and then you add a fudge factor for stuff you don't necessarily measure, like secretions, stool, blood, wounds. Now, wounds is worth a, a, a brief uh, thought, because if you've got somebody that's got a big abdominal wound that's got some you know, mucky stuff in it, all that stuff has a lot of protein in it. So you gotta think about the fact the patient's losing protein. You got somebody on the ACEs service has got various outflow from the GI tract that's not normal and drains, that stuff has protein in it. So it's worth keeping in mind that, that patient probably needs more intake because they're losing more that you're not necessarily accounting for. Like a lot of stuff with this, this, this is something that probably, unless you're studying it and you're never gonna do, 
but it was kind of common back 10, 15, 20 years ago that you would do this, and if it looks like the patient's in positive nitrogen balance, that's a good thing, because you're trying to make up for their catabolic state. If they weren't, you would say, okay, I gotta give them more protein. So now we just kind of wing it and give them a whole bunch of protein. Um, you know, the general gist is somewhere between like one and a half, 1.2, certainly a very bare minimum, one point, more like one and a half to two grams per kilo per day of protein. Uh, and just keep in mind that some of the nutritional formulas don't have a lot of protein in relation to the amount of calories you give. So it's potentially a problem uh, of giving, uh, if you're giving enough calories that way, you may have to give enough protein. So you can always add some protein, like ProSource or there's some other products around uh, to keep up the protein intake. And, and I think, and it's hard to prove this, but you know, basically since our patients are so catabolic, and particularly when we're talking about surgical or trauma patients, but even medical patients, uh, making sure they get enough protein is really a key part of their recovery. Uh, so I can, that's why I wanted to focus on this first. All right, how about calories? How do we figure out how many calories patients need? Mara. So we pick a number, 25, 30, okay. <laughs> Good. What if we actually wanted to either measure or calculate something? Uh, indirect calorimetry. So, we, oh, indirect calorimetry. What's, the, what's the indirect calorimetry? CO2 production and? Okay, that's CO2. <laughs> and yeah, look at their O2 consumption too. I'll show you that in a second. But, but we don't often do that what we more typically do is we calculate it. So there are other equations around, probably the most, not necessarily the most frequently used, but the one everybody kind of remembers is the Harris-Benedict equation, which takes into account sex, weight, height, and age, uh, and then you get a number for basal energy expenditure. And then it gets a little fuzzier because that's, that's like for a normal person just hanging out doing nothing. But our patients aren't hanging out doing nothing. They're trying to recover from illness so then you add some kind of stress factors, and, and there are various numbers around that nutritionists will add. But it really, it becomes a, a, a swag. Um, so you've got to keep that in mind. that It's, it's kind of a, a number, and it's kind of useful, but it's not like it's based on tons of science. Now, so you mentioned indirect calorimetry. We could do direct calorimetry once. <clears throat> So that doesn't really work. Um, so indirect calorimetry, the so-called metabolic cart, which you, you, know, you take a little of the device over to the bedside. Um, they you know, often will inter interface with the ventilator and make it kind of easy to do. But you actually measure CO2 production and O2 consumption. And then you calculate a number based on the Weir's formula, which, of course, is not something you need to memorize or anything. but it's, that's just, that's what you do. Um, now there are a couple important points here about this respiratory quotient, because that's what you're looking at, the CO2 production, O2 consumption. You'll notice that the RQ for fat is relatively low compared to carbohydrate. And, and that was something that people tried to take advantage of when they developed one product that I'll mention briefly later that didn't work, called Pulmacare, which is like all fat. So the notion of feeding somebody with minimal carbs and mostly fat, you keep the RQ low so the CO2 production stays low. And this could be, in theory, helpful for somebody you're having trouble getting off the vent 
uh, patient with COPD that, that, you, that you have issues with hypercarbia, it might be useful. Didn't pan out, but good theory. And the part of the reason I think it didn't really pan out is this, lipogenesis. If you overfeed somebody, what, I mean, what do we all do if you eat too much? You get fat, right? Making the fat actually produces more CO2. So that's a problem. So in terms of CO2 production, event weaning, and COPD, that kind of stuff, the overfeeding is probably the biggest problem. So you've got to be careful about that. Uh, so that's the story on calories. And in terms of the calculations and indirect calorimetry, this is kind of an interesting um, study a couple of years ago. It's rare people do indirect calorimetry either, unless you're studying it. Um, but if you look in sort of the mid-range of, this is BMI on the x-axis, and so the relationship between indirect calorimetry and, and the calculated calories based on Harris-Benedict, you are okay. So the ratio is around one if you're in sort of the mid-range of your BMI. If you are overweight, then you tend to underestimate uh, caloric needs. And if you're underweight, the opposite. So you, the, the calculation in relation to actual indirect calorimetry was not so good if you're on more extremes of your, your BMI. So worth keeping that in mind. So what to do with obese patients? Nobody really seems to know, uh, other than you probably don't need to, to feed them based on their actual weight. So people tend to either just pick a smaller, a smaller multiplier for their actual weight or look at what their, their ideal body weight or their expected is one of the terms that's more common. Uh, body weight, and then stick to like the whoops, stick to the 25-ish uh, number. Uh, again, it's important to focus on make sure they get enough protein. Uh, so you might try to give them more than what they would you would give somebody that's smaller, let's say, based on their their ideal body weight. Because um, these patients, you know, can be malnourished. Just because you got a lot of extra body fat doesn't mean you're actually well-nourished. So just keep that in mind, particularly when it comes to the protein nutrition, they probably need a lot more than you might think. Now, it's also worth thinking that about what can decrease energy expenditure, like hypothermia. That's why this room is cold, I think. So we <laughs> keep down your energy expenditure. Don't, sp don't spend a lot while you're sitting here. Um, but it's true. I mean, if you actively cool people, and you don't let them shiver, which plays into it, then you're going to decrease energy expenditure. People that are in a coma, quadriplegic, uh, you know, just when we sedate and, and um, if we paralyze patients, that's going to decrease their uh, metabolic requirements. Not that we should drastically decrease what, they, what we give them, but it's just worth keeping in mind that we are decreasing their metabolic needs. I mean, if they're septic at the same time, that might even out, I guess. So one of the things that, that became kind of a popular question, and um, you could find literature to back up whatever your, your uh, bias is in terms of intentional underfeeding, but the thinking was that at least for the first week, people are too sick to get to really do something with all the calories you give them, and maybe we should just kind of underfeed them. <clears throat> so this is a study that was part of the OMEGA trial that I'll, I'll get to later, but they actually randomized patients with acute lung injury that were on vents to 
a full feeding protocol or a underfeeding where they got just 10 to 20 calories per hour, so they were getting maybe 250, 500 calories in a day, uh, and to see what would happen with them. And basically, in this study, they found really no difference with this sort of so-called trophic feeding approach uh, in terms of vent days, other organisms of failures, mortality, uh, infections like ventilator-associated pneumonias, bacteremia. So there's really no difference. So you could look at that as, okay, well, I don't have to push the tube feeds or, or nutrition on these kind of patients, or maybe I should just feed them and there's no advantage to this sort of trophic approach. You could pick either way you want to go with it. It's hard to prove that there's an advantage to intentionally underfeeding people, but there was some thought in some people's minds that that might be actually advantageous. Now, septic shock, certainly if they're still in shock, that's not a good time to feed people much. Uh, so there's still some questions out about this whole question of underfeeding or uh, aggressively feeding. So summarizing what there is to know anyway here, in terms of calories, um, we think somewhere around 25 is probably good. Uh, and that's, I, I picked that number because it's sort of uh, in between the sort of underfeeding people that have pushed down toward more like 15 or 20. And I know when I was training, it was always a mantra that we had to get 30 calories per kilo in people. Uh, maybe more people that were than people that were septic or, or had burns, that kind of thing. Uh, so 25 is probably a reasonable number of calories per kilo per day. Protein, you know, one and a half to two, and that's kind of based on when people used to look at uh, nitrogen balance in these kind of patients, that tend to be what they needed to have, uh, particularly the catabolic, multiple trauma patients, post-op patients. So what about root administration of, <coughs> of nutrition? Antral feeding is good, right? We all think that's a good thing. <laughs> all right. But it is it's physiologically good. By feeding the gut, you keep the gut happy, maintain tight junctions between cells, stimulate blood flow to the gut. Uh, there are trophic agents that come out of the gut, like CCK, gastrin, that are good uh, for the liver and the gut. Maintain the gut villi, uh, maintain the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, the gulp, and all this can help prevent infections. I mean, there's still some thought, particularly in sepsis and uh, other hypoperfused states, the gut is some part of a harbor of, of evil of uh, bugs and endotoxin, all kinds of stuff that's sitting in the gut. So maintaining gut integrity is good. If you don't feed the gut, this is histologically what happens, starts falling apart. The worse you are in terms of injury severity or illness severity, the, the more your gut falls apart. It can happen fairly quickly. So we're talking about hours to a couple of days. So that's why feeding is important early on. Um, you can. Uh, increased bacterial challenge uh, to the uh, lymphoid tissue, risk in systemic infection, and increased organ failure. So keeping the gut happy is a very important part of this. So what about parental versus general nutrition? The, the simple answer is use it or lose it. So if you use the gut, it'll maintain its integrity, and you'll be able to continue to use it. If you wait, you won't be able to. So if the gut works, use it. Really, contraindications, a lot of these are pretty soft. So shock, yeah, okay, get through the shock. Obstruction, okay, probably not good. Lack of gut, not necessarily an absolute thing because part of rehabbing somebody with short gut is, is feeding it, but 
that's not going to necessarily provide good nutritional support for the patient, so they're going to need something else. Fistulas are always kind of also not an absolute. Small, low-volume controlled fistulas, you, know, you can actually help heal them by feeding the gut. So that's not an absolute thing, but it's something to negotiate with whoever's managing the fistula. Uh, and asthmosis, you know, from a surgeon's side point, you should never have an uncertain asthmosis, but it can come up. And, and ileus, and people toss out the word ileus a lot. You know, it's rare to truly have an, an ileus that where your intestine is not functioning. Uh, I mean, if you operate on somebody, at the end of the operation, the small bowel is still peristalsing and doing stuff, unless you've done something horrible to the patient. Uh, and if you think somebody's gut isn't working, you're, the answer to that isn't, oh, he's got an ileus. The answer is, and maybe he's got an ileus, but these are the reasons I think he has it, or this is how I'm going to investigate why he's got it. So you shouldn't stop at defining or giving the patient a label of an ileus, figure out why the patient's having a problem. I mean, sometimes it's just something simple, like the guy's getting a ton of narcotics. But it's, you got to think about that. Now, we were speaking earlier about my old uh, colleagues. So this is an editorial written by a couple people I used to work with. They actually titled Death by TPN. Uh, the TPN may represent total poisonous nutrition, <laughs> a major cause of TPN-associated increased mortality is the atrophy of the gut, mucosa, and the gall. So that, that actually is a really important statement that it's not so much that TPN causes problems, it's more that if you're not using the gut, that's what's causing the problems. And so you might be able to decrease some of the poisoning by TPN by at least getting some feedings in. So one of the things I think is an important thing think about is it's not, it's not an all or none. I mean, if you can feed somebody perfectly enterally, that's great. If you can't, but you can at least get some in, and then you need to supplement that with some parenteral nutrition, that's fine. And not using the gut at all is what you really want to avoid if you can. So how do you get access to the gut? Certainly nasal gastric or nasal jejunal or duodenal tubes are you know, the first things we typically have. Uh, operatively, it's easy to put a tube directly into the stomach, uh, gastrostomies. You can do a, a gastrostomy now percutaneously. I mean, we've been doing pegs for 20 years. Uh, it's something easy to do. Just keep in mind that you've got to be able to get a scope through the mouth down into the stomach, and that stomach has to be able to move around to be able to do that. And you have to have a stomach, too. Like, if somebody's had a distal gastrectomy, you probably shouldn't have somebody do a peg on them. <laughs> you've got to have a stomach. Uh, and then you can put a tube into the stomach that then winds its way around into the uh, small bowel, so a GJ tube of sorts, which can be useful in some patients because uh, you can suction the stomach while feeding the distal uh, bowel. And then you have direct tubes in the jejunum. It's important, and surgeons all, all understand this, but for non-surgeons to recognize the big difference in complications between a gastrostomy and a jejunostomy. The stomach is a big, dumb bag. All it does is sit there. It doesn't move, I mean, it does peristalsis, but it doesn't move around, do anything. So if you put a tube directly into it, it's not going to go anywhere. On the other hand, the jejunum, peristalsis, it can twist on itself. It can easily kink. It's smaller caliber than the, than the stomach. So having a tube in the jejunum, you have much greater risk of causing obstruction, uh, torsing, all kinds of bad things happen, so it's much better to get a tube directly in the stomach and then pass it around or something else with it than a jejunostomy tube. But there are times when you can't do that and you have to do a jejunostomy. So in terms of 
access for feeding, this is an algorithm I put together. Everybody's got some different views, perhaps. So starting with, if you got the intestine, okay, you can do enteral feeding. If you don't have intestine, you got to do TPN. We'll start with some, a basic thing. If you don't have much intestine, you got to do parental nutrition. If somebody's having a major abdominal operation uh, and you think they're going to be able to be fed within a few weeks, then, you know, put in a nasal to somewhere feeding tube. Um, and I think it's, from a surgical standpoint, it's worth thinking about when you're in the operating room, making sure you got a tube that passes in, into the jejunum because you can feel it. You know, it's there. You don't have to futz around with, um, you know, other things to do to get a tube beyond the duodenum uh, later on. If it's going to be a longer time and you anticipate that, then, you know, while you're there, put a tube in. It makes sense. So that's kind of thinking forward, and oftentimes that doesn't always happen. Um, yeah, certainly without an operation, if they're not going to need feedings for too long, you can just do a nasal to somewhere feeding tube. And I always kind of, if, if I got consulted for a PEG or G-tube, you know, I would want to know, is this guy going to need it for more than a few weeks? Because you do a G-tube or, or a PEG, it's going to stay in for six weeks because you've got to get things scarred in there before you can take it out. So it would be a real waste do a procedure on somebody, they, then, you, then you don't need it a week later, that's not particularly a good thing. Um, so if you do need it longer, you can do a PEG. Um, it's possible to pass the tube through the PEG into the jejunum if somebody actually aspirates. Um, there are radiologic approaches, but again, you've got to be able to get a tube into the stomach to insufflate the stomach to be able to do that. Uh, so there, there are a bunch of options here, and it's worth thinking about the patient's anatomy and how long they're going to need a tube to decide what you're going to do. And just throwing one quick comment about end-of-life care, because I've had some weird conversations about this, that you know, if you're withdrawing life-sustaining therapies, mo the vast majority of the time, we're going to withdraw nutritional support. I have, I have actually heard senior intensivists say, oh, starving is a terrible thing, and we can't people let people starve. I don't think many of us actually agree with that, and the literature does not agree with that either. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, if the family really for whatever reason, it's fixated on continuing some feeding, that's okay. Um, and the other side of it is, you know, terminal patients, uh, you know, some people will refuse to put in a feeding tube of some sort into somebody who's you know, potentially dying of cancer in the next few months because there's no data to suggest that it extends life. There's no data to, to suggest that 90% of what we do actually is useful. So I find that a little troublesome that, you know, if the procedure itself has little risk and it's something that might provide some comfort for a patient who may die in a few months, maybe that's a reasonable thing to do. Just my opinion about it. Uh, it is important when you're feeding people, decrease risk of aspirations to elevate the head of the bed. Continuous feeding seems to be better. Um, Prokinetics can be very useful. You know, there are some downsides of either one. Medical opramide, I, I think some of the problems are overrated, but, you know, I kind of like it if I need it. Erythromycin is okay. Minimize narcotics. Uh, if you need to use it, there are like PO things like albumapan, naloxone that can decrease the the enteral problems with narcotics. Um, and if you need to, get it to farther down the GI tract. And minimize you know amount of times lay the patient flat because that's when you get into trouble. Keep people upright. So risks of enteral feeding, uh, sinusitis, which is like. Almost, I never see it. I mean, it used to be a big problem with bigger, stiffer tubes in the nose, but you almost never see it. And partly because we keep people more upright, I think. That's the, so the drains. But that's one potential thing. 
passing tubes the wrong direction, really pushing tubes the wrong direction. Um, sadly, we actually had one of these a few months ago in the SICU. Uh, tubes that were in the right place that now are not in the right place. <laughs> this, this is a peg. That's what, for any of you that haven't seen a peg, this is what the inside looks like. It's kind of a mushroom cap kind of thing. <clears throat> but this is the stomach wall. And that's the peg. So it's pulled out of the stomach. So one of the key things with these tubes, making sure they're not on tension, either by stuff outside the patient or just the bolster that the, whoever puts it in, um, you know, puts it too tight, that's going to cause necrosis and you can have all kinds of trouble. Uh, and this is all feed, two feeds in the stomach and the peritoneal cavity. Feeding the peritoneal cavity does not work. <laughs> in case you had thought it might. Feeding the pleural space doesn't work either. So please don't try these things. Um, another problem with enteral feeding is diarrhea. And the typical response to diarrhea is to just slow down the feedings, but it's worth thinking about other things. Uh, you know, like are you doing continuous feedings? Is there a fecal impaction? Uh, is the patient on antibiotics that you might be able to stop? Does the patient have C. diff? Uh, is the patient on any laxatives? I mean, oh yeah, he's still getting sent on colas and he's pooping out his, bra his brains out. Um, you can use, I mean, there's a lot of controversy here, whether adding fiber is useful or not. Uh, guargum is getting some popularity. I don't know. So there's some ways you might want to slow them down if that's, once you've ruled out bad problems, sometimes you just got to give a little stuff to slow down the uh, diarrhea. Uh, what to do if the tube falls out? Gastro tubes, early on, you might be able to get it back in without doing a big procedure, particularly if it's an open tube rather than a peg, because there's actually sutures holding the stomach up. Uh, but later on, it's usually pretty easy to slip a G tube back in. Jejunal tubes, as I was showing you, it's a more complex thing. You do this whole whistling thing, and, and if it slips out, chances are good it's not going to go back in unless it's been there a long time. So that's a bigger problem. So try to keep the tubes in. It always bothers me when you go by a bedside and you see the tubes getting yanked off to the side. Same with trachs as a quick aside. When you see the trach hanging off the patient's neck, I mean, do something to fix that problem. Gastric versus small bowel feeding probably doesn't really matter, but it's post-pyloric unless somebody proves they're, they're, gonna, they're having problems with gastric feedings. The, you know, statistically, in, in studies, there's no difference in ventilator-associated conditions uh, unless they prove they're intolerant, like vomiting. Uh, people are really high risk of aspiration. People worry about things like neuropatients and aspirating, but they aspirate their own secretions. It's unrelated to the tube feeds. You got to make sure the tube feeds don't get into the mouth, but the risk of that isn't any different than anybody else. It's just they won't be able to tolerate it very well. All right, so I'm going to go through a few myths. Uh, feeding after GI surgery, there's plenty of data that um, you can do that unless, you know, depending upon how big the operation is, even though most surgeons won't do it. But this is one study, feeding within 24 hours, decreased mortality. There was some more vomiting, but no overall increase in, in complications. In fact, decreased post-op complications, decreased length of stay. So unfortunately, this is up to the surgeon, so you can't necessarily argue with them, but there's plenty of data you can feed. And waiting for bowel sounds, latest stool, that's all totally overrated, but again, don't argue with the surgeon who's done this for 20 years, who says, I'm going to wait till he poops. But it it's always entertains me when somebody says, oh, somebody's got bowel sounds on all four quadrants. I mean, I don't think I've listened to four quadrants of bowel. I haven't listened to any sounds <laughs> since I was like in physical examination medical school. Um, and I am still a board certified general surgeon, so it, it really is overrated. Uh, feeding the open abdomen. There's decent data you can feed the open abdomen, too. This is just one study. 
showing actually earlier fascial closure with early enteral nutrition. Uh, fistula formation was actually less. I mean, not big numbers here, but, uh, and it's cheaper. So you can actually, again, you have to convince the surgeon. Pancreatitis, I'm not going to go into other than there's also plenty of literature that feeding early, you know, once you get them reasonably resuscitated, particularly with a tube, perhaps, and this is also debatable, whether it needs to be just post-pyloric or post-ligament trites. I think most of us are kind of are suggesting or feel like post-ligament trites makes the most sense. Um, but you can feed people with pancreatitis. And again, it'll do it early, use it or lose it. And you might use an elemental diet, which means it's something that's got simple sugars, medium chain triglycerides, easily absorbed. There's not great data to show that this is any better than something else, but it's something to think about, uh, particularly with pancreatitis. Another thing, prone positioning. Can we feed people while they're prone? One study at least showing that uh, you actually can. The volume that they get in was similar in terms of gastric residuals were not any significantly different anyway. It was close. It was a little higher, but not like, not like dangerously bad. Uh, so you can prone people. You certainly want to keep them tilted up if you can. Um, so percentage of people that had high gastric residuals or vomited were not really different. A little more regurgitation with prone. So you've got to be careful, but it is doable. You shouldn't necessarily starve people while they're prone. And then another part of this is checking residuals. That's, that's like something we've done forever and forever. This is a great study that I call Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, the multicenter trial in France where they either, the intervention was they didn't even check residuals and then just waited for the patients to vomit. To, they would otherwise keep feeding them. Or they check residuals and, and hold the feeds if they had a residual over 250. And what they found was the intervention group actually got more calories early on, and there's no difference in uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. So uh, at least this study suggests it's, you don't really need to check. I think people will still check. And, but the thing is, we keep bumping up the number that should cause us to pause and think about it. I mean, certainly if somebody's consistently over like 250, you know, if we are checking it, I might think of adding a prokinetic agent or think about passing it to a post-pyloric, but don't just automatically stop the feeds or cut them back. An important thing about two feeds is what you order is and what you get. Um, you know, this is one, some data that, you know, if you order whatever, uh, they get somewhere around 50% of it, and over 85% of patients have their feedings held um, at least 20% of the time. And the problem is most of that's avoidable. It's, quote, intolerance, which often isn't really intolerance. But it's NPO for procedures. I mean, that's something I think we've fought a bit with the anesthesiologist, that you're somebody who's already intubated, you know, yeah, we'll stop the two feet when they go to the OR, but do you have to stop it six hours before or stop it at midnight for an operation that doesn't go till 6 p.m.? Probably not. Protocols help. We'll get to that at the end. So parental nutrition, I would suggest uh, only people really aren't going to be fed enterally for at least a week. And particularly if they have pre-existing malnutrition, then you might want to start it earlier if they clearly aren't going to get enterally fed for a week. Um, and there's some preemptive stuff maybe in GI surgery, but that's kind of debatable too. There's certainly risks of parental nutrition. You've got to have essential wine. Um, the gut atrophy is the biggest thing, uh, as well as cholestasis, cholestasis, those sorts of problems. And it is about the Benjamins too. It does cost a lot more. Uh, this is just one studying patients who had a, a short-term contraindication to enteral nutrition, 
and whether they should give them TPN early or late. And obviously, if they did it early, they got more nutrition early on compared to the late group. Not too surprising. But in the end, there was no difference in mortality, length of stay, you know, albumin, low, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's no real difference. So a short-term inability to feed somebody is not a reason necessarily to start TPN. So some quick special stuff. Immunonutrition, which is a hot topic, uh, giving like arginine and glutamine, which also is helpful to the gut because the gut can use it for fuel. Nucleic acids, omega-3 fatty acids, antioxidants. There seem to be some more benefit in surgical patients than medical patients. Um, the MetaPlus study recently kind of squashed a lot of that interest. This is a study looking at a high-protein endonutrition formula, plus or minus immune modulating nutrients uh, in people that were expected to be in the ICU for at least three days and on the ventilator. So they added um, the, the uh, omega-3 fatty acids, antioxidants to the um, intervention group and basically found no difference at all. In fact, there was a slight increase in mortality in the medical patients with the immune-enhancing stuff. I don't know if that actually means anything. But the, the important, not the same about medical patients, but I, I don't know what that, that necessarily means. It doesn't necessarily mean mad, but it does suggest, all this suggests there's no real benefit of adding these goodies. And I think this has kind of gone a little bit away because of that. So there's been lots of interest over the years in organ systems, what you can do specifically for organ systems, like Pumbakari mentioned, uh, and this is looking at uh, high fat versus moderate fat and the respiratory quotient. Um, and and you, you, heart, you can't change it very much just by changing that ratio a little bit. Um, so Pumbakari, I don't think, is particularly useful at all. Uh, the other thing that's come up is ARDS patients. Would antioxidants be of benefit? So that's this big omega trial that was also done by the ARGENET group. Uh, so it ended up being stopped for futility, but so they had this omega-3 fatty acid uh, as the intervention. They gave them a bunch of these omega-3 fatty acids as well as some antioxidants like vitamin C, vitamin E, and all this other stuff, selenium, all those other goodies in there. Uh, thinking that would be good for patients with lung injury. Uh, looking at lung parameters, you know, uh, a little bit of difference in plateau pressures, but nothing significant in anything else. Um, and bottom line, in terms of actual survival and um, getting off of ventilators, actually better in the control group. This is survival in the in the treatment uh, in the control versus treatment and um, ventilator free days um, in the other groups. So it actually seemed worse. Then. There have been some smaller studies that suggested some benefit. So that's kind of off the table now, at least for the moment. What about the kidneys? Well, the kidneys, we worry about stuff like volume status, uremia, electrolytes. But keeping in mind, malnutrition is bad. I mean, even in chronic kidney failure, they're feeding people more than they used to. And particularly if you're, if you're dialyzing somebody, who cares if you give them a bunch of protein? You're going to get rid of excess stuff with your dialysis. So it's been hard to prove that any kind of formula has helped with, with uh, kidney failure. They certainly have high caloric and protein needs just because they're sick, they're catabolic, like any other patients that we have. It is worth keeping in mind, though, if you actually have them on CRT, they're going to lose a lot from that, so they may actually need extra uh, because of the CRT. Uh, there, was, there is this product around Nepro. Uh, it tends to be kind of calorie 
uh, dense, so you don't get as much of the protein that these patients need in terms of catabolism. It comes in nice flavors. Uh, but I, I, I tend not to find it particularly useful. I think the only utility for it is it is low in potassium. So if you're struggling with potassium, you're trying to feed somebody, and you may be dialyzing or not, whatever, that's where Nepro actually could be kind of useful. So that's where at least worth keeping that part in mind. But just because somebody's got kidney dysfunction, putting them on Nepro I don't think is a reasonable thing. Similar with liver disease. So you know, part of the encephalopathy of liver disease is related to aromatic amino acids. They get high levels of aromatic ones, low levels of branch chain. So you could flip that around by giving them high levels of branch chain and low levels of aromatic you know, tube feeding formulas. Uh, but again, they're malnourished. They need protein. So the tendency had been to kind of hold back on giving them protein because they'll get more encephalopathic. But in fact, they're, they're just not going to do well if you don't keep them well nourished. So we've kind of gotten around to keep, giving them plenty of nutrition also. Because uh, their mortality is based on other stuff. It's not necessarily the nutrition. So there was Nutrihap and there are other hepatic formulas around. But you probably never see them used because they don't work. But the idea of them was to flip that amino acid balance around a little bit uh, give them lots of calories and not so much protein, but they really don't change any kind of outcomes. So that's the final <laughs> the message about organ-specific formulas. They don't work. Uh, I'm sure some will come up with another one. So a lot of the special stuff that we've talked about doesn't work. In fact, you know, five years ago, I might have, you know, we talked about, well, maybe the, you know, the pack formula was helpful, or maybe antioxidants with ARDS was helpful. But for the most part, all this, and immune, immune nutrition was a really hot topic, and everybody's getting impact and, and other formulas. And they're still around. Pivot's another one. Um, and, you know, there may be some benefit to those in some subpopulations, like, like multi-trauma patients and very catabolic patients. But it kind of comes down to what I said at the beginning, that feed people, end early, and do it early. So how do you make sure you do this? This is actually kind of an interesting um, approach that, that you know, Darren Hanlon was here and gave a nice talk in the fall. Uh, and they talked about this. this uh, it's, they call it PEP up, which is really kind of a stretch based on the, the terms here because they grab the U out of root. But anyway, so protein energy provision via enteral root in critically ill patients. But the point they make is, is it's not a bad one. If you do everything up front to try to get the fed, and then you kind of back off on stuff as they kind of do okay. So they would start with a semi-elemental product like peptamin, so it will get well absorbed. Start at 25 and have the nurses just ramp up by protocol. Um, they use a volume-based feeding, which is kind of like having a servo ventilator. So like if, if the patient has two feeds held for a few hours, then the nurse will calculate what they miss and then increase the rate for the next several hours to make up for it. That's not a bad idea. They would start off with a prokinetic agent. They would liberalize gastric residual volume so they wouldn't stop unless it's well over 250 uh, and add protein supplements. So by doing this, people got fed more. This is the protocol group in terms of how many calories they actually got early on. So it kind of makes sense, and there's some easy parts that maybe we should be doing more of. But, so, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning that there are a bunch of guidelines out there. And I thought this was a great study, because this actually was a study looking at whether actually using the guidelines makes a difference. So it's like EBM for EBM and finding that it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> now, you know, we, we, so we've had other things that, that 
it's hard to show a difference anymore like, like early goal-directed therapy for sepsis. Since sort of the control group has changed, it's hard to show a difference anymore. And it's possible that's what they showed here, that people have kind of changed what they do in a standard, you know, um, run-of-the-mill ICU versus a protocolized ICU. So maybe that's the problem. Uh, but it's hard to prove that doing any stuff makes a difference. Um, so maybe I just wasted the last hour of your life. I don't know. Um, and here's part of the other reason I think this is why is this is the protocol they had. So can you follow that? I, I mean, even if I blew this up, it's, it's like if you, if you make it really complicated, people can't do it. So that, that's another part of implementing protocols that's, that's kind of important. So as I said at the beginning, and I've kind of like, you know, shown a lot of stuff and now I kind of come back full circle. Like, there's not a lot of data to do a whole lot more than if, you know, if you can start the feeding early, don't, don't feed them while they're still in shock, but start the feeds early, use the gut as much as you can, and, and I think you can really push that. I mean, honestly, I've seen more TPN here in the last nine months of years than, than I've seen in the last 20 years. Um, maybe it's because I work with people who write editorials on total poison misnutrition or death by TPN. Um, but, uh, you know, oftentimes you can use the gut. Even if you can't use it fully and you need a supplement, that's probably okay. But use the gut as much as you can, start early, and hopefully that makes our patients do better. And I'm sure there'll be more data that'll come by, but right now it's hard to say that anything else really makes much of a difference. So, thanks.